Welcome back to The Exchange Podcast. My name is Sabrina Parker, and I created The Exchange Podcast to speak with business leaders, entrepreneurs, and creatives from around the world. Join me as I have meaningful conversations with those who inspire me and who I hope will inspire you too. So for this episode, I spoke to Jacqueline Comer, who is the founder and chief product officer of a really interesting tech company called Aretto Labs. She is from Canada, but lives currently in Auckland, New Zealand. And basically her company uses AI to track and mitigate online abuse, which obviously is a massive issue across a number of areas in the world today. Jacqueline herself has a really interesting backstory as she actually studied English and now obviously is leading a tech company. So we talked a little bit more about her background in English and linguistics, why she decided to help co-found Aretto Labs, and also dug in a bit more to what the business does, the people that it serves, and the intricacies of the products that it offers. Jacqueline also shared a lot of really interesting insights into why she feels everyone actually has a place in helping to shape the future of AI and technology, regardless of your background. It was really insightful to talk to Jacqueline and to learn more about the tech space. I hope you're able to take away some valuable insight in the way that I did. And let's get into it. Thank you so much for joining me, Jacqueline. For anyone who doesn't know you, could you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Jacqueline Comer, and I'm a founder and chief product officer at Aretto Labs. I wanted to start at the beginning. I know that you studied English and you worked as a journalist, copywriter. I was wondering kind of what drew you to that world. Ah, I mean, it's it's one of those like terrible stories where you put, you know, the future of your life and career in the hands of somebody super young. <laughs> what do you know when you're 16 and having to make these major decisions? And when I was growing up, I grew up in Edmonton. The Oilers were doing really well when I was quite young and I, you know, grew to love hockey. And so when I decided I had to figure out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, I thought what I'd really like to not do is pay to go to hockey games anymore. (laughs) And so in order to not have to pay to go to hockey games anymore, what do I have to do? And that was either go into broadcasting or go into writing. And so Because I was a relatively lazy 16-year-old, I decided I didn't want to write the essay to go into broadcasting. And so I went to university and did an English major so that I could learn how to write. And then as your career progressed, did you ever see yourself ending up in tech? Yes and no. You know, growing up, I was always quite into adopting any sort of tools that would help me do something easier and quicker. It's almost like taking the lazy way out of things. When I was a kid, I used to love to program one of our first computers. I've always just kind of liked to to use tools like that. So I always knew that, you know, tech was going to be important in my career. I didn't know until I was maybe in my late 30s. So well through my career and having, you know, done some tech things here and there that I knew that I actually wanted to officially be in tech. Mm -hmm. And just to fast forward to Aretto Labs, what was the catalyst or the mission behind creating Aretto Labs? So first of all, Aretto Labs uh, mission is to make the online world more positive and inclusive. And birth of Aretto Labs actually started with the mission of trying to make sure that there were as many women as men running for political office. In Edmonton at the time, uh, back in the 
2012, around there, there were more mics than women in Edmonton City Council. And uh, the other two founders, Casey and Lana, they started a nonprofit to try to encourage more women to run for office. And when they were asking these overqualified women, you should run for office, they would come back saying, I can't, I don't want to. And then we would have a series of reasons, usually around fundraising, not knowing how to fundraise and not knowing how to run a campaign. And so, you know, it was easy to find solutions to those problems. It was finding specialists in those areas and running workshops. But by the time we got to around 2017, 2018, the conversations actually changed. And it went from fundraising to online abuse, that these women didn't want to run for office because they were afraid of putting themselves or their family in the line of fire. And so all the work that Casey and Lana had done around setting up a system to make sure that they can help women run, suddenly that system was not going to work anymore. And through a whole bunch of happenstance with our CEO, Lana, seeing a paper about online abuse that Amnesty International did. She got this idea of creating this piece of technology that would be able to understand if somebody is being abused and abused online and then being able to react to that abuse. And so a, a bot was created called Parity Bot, and that bot ran across four different elections in three different countries. There's actually maybe a business case here and that there's actually a, a larger problem of online abuse. It's not just in politics, but in journalism and sports really in anywhere. And so that's how it started was with this bot in politics. And now we're looking at all sorts of other things that we can do with that type of technology. And what were your responsibilities when you were co-founding Aretto Labs? And how is that different from now being the chief product officer? This is a great question. So I actually came into Aretto Labs after it was initially founded. And so, you know, have things evolved from founding a company to running a company and being a chief product officer? I mean, we're still early stage startup. Every day we learn more. Every day we don't know something. And every day we learn what that thing is. I think when you have a startup, there's so much you don't know, but there's also so much you don't know you don't know. I think initially founding a business. It's about how do we fund ourselves? Who's our customer? What do they want? We know the problem we're trying to solve, but does anyone else care about that problem? A few years in, we're a bit past the what problem are we trying to solve? We've got our problem space and we've figured out our beachhead market, our first market. And now it's how do we get to those people? How do we make sure we deliver a piece of technology that they want? How do we make sure that we have the right people working on our technology and within our team to help us deliver what we promise? And so it's gone from how do you start a business? What do you need? How do you open a business bank account? Things like that to, you know, how do we actually write contracts for some international brands that their lawyers will sign off and sort of those bigger problems. Still, it's the same thing, though, of every day, just learning, 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 learning. There's so much to learn and so much we don't know. Yeah. And could you maybe walk us through a typical day in your life in terms of the responsibilities you have now? Sure. Yeah. So I live in New Zealand. Most of the team is in North America. And so my typical day usually starts at around six o'clock when I check my Slack messages and see what's been going on. If there's any bugs that have popped up overnight, how our tech team is doing, if everything is running smoothly, kind of just what's going on in the business, what conversations have been happening. Then usually at about 7.30, I officially start my day and sit down at my desk. And uh, goodness, my days are filled with all sorts of things. So while I'm the chief product officer, I also also look after the engineering team. So we don't have a, a technical CTO, which is an interesting journey of 
trying to learn a lot of those skills as well. So the engineers sit under my purview. And so it's a lot of communication with them, trying to learn what struggles they're having, making sure that on the product side, that we're sticking to our roadmap and that our engineers know what they're supposed to be working on. So there's a lot of conversations around that. But then as a founder, there's always conversations with the other founders on various business things that are coming up, whether it's funding, whether it's a presentation, whether it's a bit of business development in a new market, always conversations around that. And then talking to sales and marketing, there's no quiet days. And every day, it's a lot of different things at once. Sometimes that can be extremely overwhelming. But I think as a founder, you sort of expect that you're going to be working on many, many things all at once, all day. And the bigger the team gets, the more you need to know what's going on and the more that you need to trust other people that will tell you when you need to know something. For sure. And what are the kinds of products and features that Areto Labs offers? And then what kinds of customers are you targeting? Great question. So we have a product we call Areto. And Areto is a web app that is able to track, moderate and counteract online abuse. So online abuse gets sent to somebody on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, our AI systems are able to identify whether or not that comment is abuse and whether or not it's racist or sexist or transphobic or homophobic or even a gender microaggression. We actually made our own model to be able to track gender microaggressions, which large language models don't typically do. But we knew from our work with ParityBot that it was extremely important, especially for women and non-binary people, that gender microaggressions are extremely pervasive and hurtful and definitely need to be called out and caught and hidden. So we're able to track all of that stuff. And then we're able to hide or delete some of that content. So we delete spam. So if something is, you know, a high probability of spam, we get rid of that usually within about three seconds of it existing in the world. And then in terms of abuse, depending on the thresholds that our customers want, we're able to hide that so that nobody sees it. We don't delete it. It still exists out there, but no one can see it. And then we also have a really cool feature and some fun things that we're playing around with. I think everyone's sort of on the on the generative AI chat GPT boat. And we're taking some lessons that we learned from the parody bot, which was actually something that did respond. And we've been able to sort of utilize that within our product to be able to respond to some of the negative. So not to the not to the trolls. Never, never. Everyone who's listening to this, don't ever respond to a troll. But to someone who's maybe using a microaggression. A microaggression is often a gateway to greater abusive language that it's often a way for people to test out to see, can I say this? And if they get, you know, good response, they get likes, people share it, people comment on it, then, oh, okay, this is actually, it feels really good. I've got a lot of attention and may actually send another more abusive comment. So we do try to jump in Then if that's what our customer wants, our systems will jump in and offer up three different types of responses that you can give based on that comment. And then the the second part of your question was, who are our customers? So while we had started in politics, our beachhead market is sports. And the reason why we're in sports, I mean, we're, we're all sports fans. And as I said at the beginning, I did try to build a career around never having to pay to go to hockey games again. But sports is a really interesting industry. And it is so close to how a lot of people live culturally, like culture and sport are so close. 
if your team does really well in a big tournament with a sport that your country cares about, everyone in the country is celebrating. If your team does poorly, it's the other way. And even looking at your city or community, sport is how a lot of people live and feel connected to other people. And we found that sport has lots of online abuse. We've seen awareness of the problem grow since we've started, but we've had awareness of this problem since, you know, 2017, 2018. That's not the case for everyone. We sometimes forget that what we know is not necessarily what everyone knows because we pay so much attention to it. And so in sport, it tends to be newsworthy because so many people do care about sport that when there is abuse of players, that does tend to get a lot of media attention and that media attention impacts brand reputation. And so there's an actual business need for companies, for sports teams, leagues to actually do something about online abuse to protect their own investments and sponsors within the sports space. Definitely. Yeah. And I read that you had a unique experience when you were watching the World Cup in 2002 in Seoul, South Korea. I was wondering if you could maybe share this story and also how that's informed your own career choices. Yeah. As I said, I've always been a massive sports fan. I love live sporting events. Like, Of course, I like to watch sports with friends and watch it at home, but there's nothing quite like a live sporting event, whether it's a game or a tournament or if it's you know a massive event. And I was teaching English in Seoul, South Korea in 2001 to 2002. And that just so happened to be when the FIFA World Cup, the Men's World Cup was there. It split between Korea and Japan. I had been living in Korea for about a year by then and had sort of like figured out how to fit in. But when I was there, so 2002, there weren't as many, I would say, people with access to Westerners. I'm, I'm white. I definitely stuck out everywhere I went. And, I, you know, at the beginning, that was challenging. I found it a bit strange to not feel like I fit in. But then after a while, I kind of got used to it. And I'll admit that it was kind of fun to be the celebrity in the neighborhood. But definitely a strange way to kind of exist. And while I was kind of felt like even when I fit in, I always kind of didn't fit in because I looked so different. And when it came to the World Cup, I saw this like amazing shift in the way that the South Koreans saw themselves as a nation. As they went through the tournament, South Korea did really well. So they got through the first round, the second round, and lost in the semis, and they played in the third place game against Turkey. Every time there was a game on, if we didn't go to a game, then it was going to your neighborhood, and they would set up a big screen, and you would sit on cardboard on the ground, and you would share food with everyone around you. That's how the culture works. And everyone would stand up and cheer when it was time to cheer, and then sit back down, and you'd clear up your rubbish after. And as the tournament wore on, and the more that I got into it, I mean, I had all of my Korean cheers and all the songs that go with it and wearing my Be The Reds t-shirt with everyone else. And there was the coach of the Korean soccer team was Goose Heating. I had a Goose Heating t-shirt. Like I, I was into it. And so was everyone else. It was kind of their big face to the world, showing them, look how successful we can be as a country. There was a game. Oh, goodness. I think it must have been the, the quarterfinals that I was watching in the middle of town with a whole bunch of people. And it was just this one like really amazing moment where I just kind of looked around, we're sharing food together, we're all chanting the same things. And it was like the first time in really it was almost a year living there that I actually felt like I 
belonged. Like I wasn't sticking out, you know, even though I had like red face paint and, and a bright red top and, and that sort of thing that I actually fit in, that I actually belonged there. And I mean, how long ago was that? Almost 25 years ago. And it's still one of the greatest months of my life. It was so much fun and just really amazing to go from always feeling like I stuck out to feeling like I belonged and was so embraced because I was embracing the same team and I was embracing the same sport and singing the songs and eating the food. And yeah, it was just a really, really cool time. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really amazing story. So thank you for sharing that. I was also curious to know how you've leveraged your background in English and linguistics, obviously with Aretto Labs being technology that spots different patterns in language. Have you been able to kind of play off your background in that in your current role? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the one of the most interesting things I think about technology and especially where the core of our technology is, which is machine learning and specifically natural language processing and natural language generation, it's all about words. So it's technology, but it's what do words mean? What does the order of words mean? How are you able to detect that at scale? How are you able to understand context? And I think because I've always been a word nerd, you know, a degree in English, you kind of have to be if you're going to be reading all those books and writing all those papers. It's kind of just has felt natural to lead a tech team that is dealing with things like that. You have to be pretty flexible and pretty open to learning a lot of things about how you might use technology and language together. But really, every day is looking at our data, looking at how our own machine learning models that we've built ourselves are scoring and looking at what are we missing? Was it the syntax? Is it the word order? Like what's happening here where we're getting a false positive or a false negative? I think people are often scared of you know, if you're a word nerd, you tend to be a bit nervous about the sciences, but I don't think that actually needs to be the case, especially now with the growth of artificial intelligence and especially with the growth of generative AI, even when it comes to art, to voice, to video, to words. Anyone with any sort of background in language, in linguistics, in art, in design has a huge place in figuring out where this technology will go and how to use it. Having a technology company, but being an English major is quite different, but I think there's a lot of power in that too. And the other two founders, we think this is funny, they're also English majors. <laughs> and so there's three founders of a technology company that are English majors, which I think is a kind of a cool story. For anyone in the arts, I think you can be an arts major and still have a tech company because technology in and of itself is no use, but technology that solves the problem is. And if you have a great understanding of how people live and move through the world and the struggles that they have and your own struggles too, then I think you have a really good understanding of what types of tools that technology can create to solve some of those problems. And do you think that in this day and age, it's kind of inevitable for companies to have to dedicate some time and money to mitigating online abuse? Do you think it's just a necessity at this point? Uh, I think absolutely. I think it will become more of a necessity in the future as we have laws that keep up with the changes in technology. I think where we see countries or groups of countries adopt laws against online abuse and laws with teeth that actually put the responsibility on organizations to take down any sort of racist, sexist, homophobic abuse, that there's greater adoption of tools to actually help you do that. And so I think as countries start to adopt those laws, as there's more pressure on our own governments to create those laws, the more important it will be for companies to do it. I think, you know, it's hard for people to spend the money on something that's not necessary to do. 
I know that's a bit of a, a pessimistic way of looking at business, but with you know shrinking budgets, with people trying to do more with less, unless people are forced to actually have to take this on, I think it's a hard sell. When you start to see the impact of things on your brand, you, you're almost like reacting to something bad that happens. And so there'll be adoption. But I think really, it's not until we have those good laws that we'll see greater adoption and care about this. You touched on this a little bit, but what do you think are the major issues in cybersecurity that are going to come up down the line? I mean, identity. I think identity is going to be a massive thing. Being able to identify whether something is real, to be able to protect your identity and your own intellectual property. I think that's going to be a really big one. How do you make sure that the things that you produce aren't being used to train a model and then being mimicked for free and not getting any residuals from that? How do you protect your likeness? So while, of course, online abuse is a major security issue, you know, there are some people whose jobs are online. It has to be online. That is the way that they move through the world. There's lots of danger for those people to lose their livelihoods because they're being attacked. Somebody doesn't like something they said. They can get their own community to swarm them attack them, disgrace them, either kick them off the platform and make them go into hiding or just ruin their reputation. And we see that a lot. And I think it's going to happen more and more. So I hope we don't end it on this because there's a lot of scary things that are happening right now, that ability for a lot of technologies to be used in in nefarious ways. And I think we should all care about that. The good news is there's a lot of people out there who are also thinking about this and trying to find solutions. And so I think there is hope that there will be solutions in place to be able to protect ourselves, our companies, our families from these technologies. But I think it'll take everyone to actually care, not, you know, throw your arms up and say it's too hard because it is hard, but to actually care and push to make sure that your own identity is protected as much as it possibly can be. And the last question I wanted to ask you, just to end it on a little bit more of a positive note, what are you looking forward to in the future with Aretto Labs and with social media at large? I think the promise of social media back in the day was that it would connect people together. And I still believe in that promise. I would take that promise even further and say that not only will it connect people, it will also enable people to have a voice. And I think that our real life world reflects the world uh, online. So any sort of structural issues around race, around gender. I mean, that same thing is going to be online. But I see the impact that we're already having with our technology on how people move through the world, how like our users are actually thinking about how to post and feeling safe about posting things they wouldn't normally post because they knew that they would get attacked for it and being able to feel like they're protected. So I think the promise of social media of being that connector and that the ability to democratize access to opportunity, I think is going to be there. I'm really excited to play a part in that. I think that, you know, there's other companies like ours that are working on the same thing and trying to make sure that we're enabling more people to have a voice in the digital sphere. And obviously that impacts life outside as well. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. I think we'll end it there for this time, but I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Sabrina. I've really enjoyed this. that conversation, please be sure to leave a review and stay tuned for the next episode.